Hosea chapter 5. The prophet Hosea has been called by God to proclaim the truth of God to the northern kingdom of Israel that had separated itself from Judah and Benjamin. One very major reason was because they did not want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Jerusalem. And what began as going north and establishing altars in the north to worship God, which was against the Lord's desire, of course, they began to carve out images and they carved out a golden calf in a few regions, but in effect, they weren't really worshiping God and calling him, you know, or saying, well, this is God, you know, the golden calf. They just wanted to worship idols like the nations around them, which was something that the Lord had told them way before they need not do. They should not do, and they should never do, because there's only one God, and he was to be worshiped. And so God told Hosea, go marry a prostitute. And he did. Her name was Gomer. And God used that as, a, as an example to the nation of Israel of what they had done. They had forsaken their husband, who God was to be to them. And they went a-whoring after other gods. Because this continued on, and because the northern kingdom had only evil kings, that meant that it was only going to go down. Yet God gave them opportunity, gave them the prophets like Hosea to tell them that they needed to come back to God. They needed to come back to worship him. So we find that what began in chapter 4 as a legal indictment against Israel now leads to the verdict in this particular court case where God is the judge. So now he calls out the guilty. And notice in verse 1, it says, Hear ye this, O priests, and hearken, ye house of Israel, and give ye ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because you have been a snare on Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. I know 
Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. And so the Lord was issuing this strong warning that would fall on the northern kingdom of Israel. Charges had been proclaimed by the prophets and illustrated, as I mentioned, quite graphically by the experiences of Hosea and Gomer. It would, be, it would appear, I should say, that, that due to the disdainful, uh, sneering attitude of the priests, the people and the princes, that they somehow thought that they would escape any consequences whatsoever for their idolatrous behavior. But to prevent anyone from thinking that they could actually escape the inevitable, the Lord spelled out each social class within the nation specifically. So I want you to take note of the threefold call to attention. The threefold call. Verse 1, hear ye this, O priests, and hearken, you house of Israel, and give ear, or give ye ear, O house of the king. He has made sure that no one is not covered. <laughs> Everyone is covered under this blanket of calling them out. Hear ye this, O priests. Hearken, you house of Israel, that's the people. Give ear, house of the king, that's the princes. That's how you remember, the priests, the people, the princes, the leadership, both religious and civic or civil. And then he says, for judgment is toward you because you have been a snare on Mitzpah and a net spread upon Tabor. Now, I want to break that down a little bit because he uses three different words for here. The first word is familiar to many of us. When he said, hear ye this, it is the word Shema. We know that from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echod. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He says, hear ye this, listen attentively, listen diligently. The second word that he uses is the word hearken. It is the Hebrew word kashav, which means regard and mark well. Take note of what is being said. Don't just listen, take note, mark well and regard it. The third word that he uses 
give ye ear is the word chazan, chazan, which literally means expand your ear with your hand. Have you ever had to, have you ever had to do that? Yeah, I've, I've discovered that the older I get, the more I have to do that because the less I hear. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's not selective hearing. <laughs> I'm just losing my hearing. <laughs> well, some would think otherwise. <laughs> but when you do this, you actually can hear better, right? I mean, why? Because you're expanding, you know, what, ca you know, what catches the sound waves that are coming towards you. And God was really wanting them to listen carefully to what he was saying. So it means, listen to this carefully. Don't let any of the sound waves get behind you. Let them get in you. So this threefold call intensifies and it deepens the importance of God's warning to the whole of Israel. It is not just another thing for God to say to anybody because you know what? God doesn't mess around. I don't know why we think that God is somebody that just messes around with us, you know, plays around with us, you know. He, it's, it's like people who just like to threaten a little bit and eventually go, oh, I'm just, I was just kidding. That's okay. You can go ahead and do what you're doing. No, that's not God. He wouldn't be God if that's what he did. He's serious about our lives. He's serious about where we are and where we're going. He wants us to listen. That's why he gave us his word. That's why he gave us his truth. Because in it is life. And that life is everlasting. So he says judgment is definitely coming, folks. All of you need to listen. Judgment is definitely coming and the people must heed the warning or suffer the most severe consequences imaginable. There is an interesting play on words in this verse as well, verse 1. The phrase, first of all, the phrase for judgment is towards you. In, in the King James, I'm, I'm sure there's different words in the other translations, but for judgment is toward you, literally is saying to Israel and in particular to the leadership, primarily the religious leadership, which is the priests, He's saying mishpat, that's the word judgment. Mishpat, which means my verdict and determination for you in judgment. Mishpat, pach, a snare or a net sprung on them. Two words to say, my judgment is towards you. My verdict, my determination for you in judgment is a snare, a, a net that is sprung upon you. The play on words comes from the next phrase. Because you have been a snare on mitzpah. Now remember, that, 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 here's where the, the words kind of sound alike. Mishpat is the judgment. Mitzpah is what they should have been doing. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Because you have been a snare on mitzpah and a net spread upon tabor. And so what God is saying to them 
is, as hunters spread their nets and snares on the hills, the hills Mitzpah and Tabor, so you have snared the people into idolatry and made them your prey unjustly. And therefore, because they did that, their judgment is going to be caught in a snare and a net themselves. So understand that uh, mitzpah, which means watchtower, mitzpah means watchtower, and it is associated with Gilead, or Mount Gilead, which lies southeast of the northern kingdom, uh, or southeast of the northern kingdom and east of the Jordan. So mitzpah Gilead is over just east of the Jordan River, but still yet in the north. And then Tabor, which means lofty place or fragile or broken, that's located 12 miles southwest of Galilee. So that's the, high, the upper northern part. These were places that were high places. And remember that in high places, that's where they did a lot of their idol worship. So both areas were well known for hunting. And this is where the hunting understanding comes from. Both areas were well known for hunting, but because, or I'm, I'm sorry, but be, they became major centers for false worship. They became major centers for false worship during the time of the Northern Kingdom. So the Lord, through the prophet Hosea, was making it clear that whereas the priests should have been the watchmen, the mitzpah of the people, guarding them from the evil, guarding them from evil in those lofty places. Instead, they were as hunters entrapping them in their idolatry. And in the same way, they would be judged. The whole nation, the priests, the people, and the princes then would be judged for all had fallen. All had fallen into the trap of ensnaring others through deceit, through lies, through oppression and evil desires or cravings. A spirit of greed and covetousness flooded their hearts. How many times do we find, and even in the New Testament, that there are mentions when we talk, we talk about the list of, of the Apostle Paul and, and the other apostles, but the list that Paul primarily has. Every time he mentions a list of great sins, it, it usually begins with idolatry, and usually around idolatry are the sexual sins and, and, and adultery and all of that. They're all together, and also covetousness. Covetousness is also mentioned in that first group of, of sins, of people, not, not just the Old Testament, New Testament. So a spirit of greed was, was a part of it. Why? Because they were becoming prosperous, because they were offering sacrifices to the God of fertility, to the God of fertility of the land, to the God of fertility of, uh, uh, for, for children, you know, instead of going to the God who created them, they were going to these idols. God let them prosper. God allowed them to prosper a little bit. But we know that at this time, as we study at the beginning of our, our, our study of Hosea, the prosperity was going downhill. They were becoming less prosperous. They had fewer children. And that was almost, almost natural. Why? Because they weren't 
having relations anymore as families. Now they were just having relations with, 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 with prostitutes. And in some cases, the children from those particular um, relations were offered unto, as, as, uh, unto the idols as well. So we're talking about very, very wicked, a wicked thing, and a wicked time, and a wicked people that had gotten away from the God who had given them his truth, his law, as to how they were to treat one another. That is why they were treating each other so terribly in our last couple of chapters that we studied. But the indictment goes deeper now. The indictment goes deeper. Look at verse 2 of Hosea 5. And the revolters, the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. The revolters would be those who are the apostates. More than likely, the rebellious priests in particular were guilty of being in rebellion against God and His Word. They were rebelling, they were rebelling in the truth of God. They were rebelling in, in the ways of God. And that they were profound. The word profound is the word amak in the Hebrew, which, mean, uh, which means they were deeply rooted. It's a word for deep. They were profound to make slaughter. They, they were deeply rooted in sinking to the lowest depths and being excessive in their idolatry. Excessive in their idolatry, excessive in the slaughter. They don't, you know, they don't think in terms of, well, we're out there to slaughter people. No, they're, they're putting them up for slaughter. And we'll see that it isn't just other people around them, it's their own children. I'll mention that shortly. But this idea of going deeply into sin, deeply into uh, rebelliousness, deeply into this apostasy of rejecting the truth and believing another truth goes back, I mean, we can go forward actually in Hosea to verse 9 of chapter 9, Hosea 9, 9, that says they have deeply corrupted themselves. It's, it's no longer something on the surface. It's deep. It's down deep. It's who they are. It's what they are. It's what they've become. It's what they want to be. It's gone that deep. As in the days of Gibeah, if you read Judges chapter 19, this is your homework. You know you get homework every week. But if you read Judges 19, you'll find that there was an incident that took place in that chapter at a time when um, men were acting very similar to the uh, men of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll just mention that because it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a situation that uh, brought an, a, an evil uh, incident that took place. That's what it's referring to as in the days of Gibeah. And therefore he will remember their iniquity, he will visit their sins. Uh, we need to remember that God doesn't forget when it comes to these kinds of wickedness, especially by people who are supposed to know better and then they fall into these, these particular sins and then continue in them. Uh, take, for example, Isaiah 31, verse 6. Uh, and again, we're dealing with the issue of going deeply into sin. It says, Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply 
revolted. Turn ye unto him, turn you back to God, get back to the Lord from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. The fact of the matter is when you begin to deeply revolt against God, there may be a time when you are so deep in it you'll not be able to get out. There's always hope, but only the Lord knows when those hearts are now completely sold out to the wickedness that they have embraced. Jeroboam considered it a profound, deep policy. Jeroboam, again, was, of course, the king that uh, broke away from uh, the southern kingdom and established the northern kingdom of Israel. But Jeroboam considered it a profound or a deep policy to set up golden calves to represent God in Dan, which was up in the northern part of the region, and Bethel, which was down toward the southern part of the northern kingdom, in order to prevent Israel's heart from turning again to David's line by going up to Jerusalem to worship. That's what he was rebelling against. So Israel's subsequent idolatry was grounded or established by their leaders as if they were able to hide their intentions from the Lord or of, of having alternative places for worship on behalf of, of state convenience, just on behalf of the convenience. While we live up north, we're going to have altars up there. That's not what God said. That's not what God wanted. And that's not what God allowed. And it brings to mind this one particular verse in Isaiah 29, verse 15, that says, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us? And who knoweth us? I will tell you, I will tell you this. If you've ever heard of the deep state, when we deal, when we deal with the government of our, of our own country, the government of the United States, if you, you've probably heard the statement, deep state. It is a shadow government that is lying beneath the government that is in is the current administration. And so many things we see happening today are being dictated to some extent by a shadow government, causing riots, causing all kinds of things. They, they don't want to be found. They're trying to keep it deep. God knows about that. I've always mentioned a deeper state. The deeper state is what moves the deep state. And, and I've said it many times that it is demonic. And if I had a, 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 a time, maybe after Hosea. Lord, I don't know if I'm committing myself. But maybe after Hosea, I'll, I'll take some time to talk about the deep state and the deeper state. But all of you should know about the deeper state. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual wickednesses in high places. That's the deeper state. Yet in all of these things, God knows and God has control. So no matter what people try to do in this country today, and, and a lot of the effect has happened over the years when, 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 when we were really blind spiritually, we were, we were not discerning of things as a nation. And we were more in, in, in tune with wanting to, you know, kind of just be open to whatever, is when we lose grip with discernment. And the sad thing is that a lot of the church has lost grip with discernment. And yet discernment is a gift, is one of the spiritual gifts given to the church. But it's hard to see that it's being really used in the proper way. Because discernment in the church, spiritual discernment, to discern, as, as even John talks about, that we need to know of what spirit things are, 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 are being done by. That's spiritual discernment. Uh, it's not taking place as, as much anymore in the church. I hope and pray that we continue to keep our focus on the Word of God. And, the, and that's what you need is the Word of God to keep that focus. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel had completely thrown the Word of God out. That's why we talked about the fact that the people did not know God. They didn't, know, they didn't have any knowledge of God. And we'll see a little bit of that again today. So you have this desire for people to seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord and their works are in the dark and they say, well, who sees us? Who knows us? God does. Because notice what they cannot hide from the Lord in verses 3 and 4 of Hosea. Verses, uh, Hosea chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. I know Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is, is, is one of the, the titles for the northern kingdom of Israel because they are the most prominent of the tribes of the northern kingdom of the ten that went north. I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hid from me. I know what you guys are doing. I know when you do it, even though you think you're doing it in the dark and I can't see. Thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. And please understand that when, a, when, when anything is defiled, it is unclean. And the Lord makes tremendous encouragements and exhortations and even admonitions to his people to say, I want you to be clean. This is what will keep you from being clean. This is what will get you to be clean. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them. And they have not known the Lord. There it is. They have not known the Lord. 
And let me interject here that that also means it's not talking about just knowing about God because they had a religious part of their nation. Didn't, I mean, there was a religious part to their nation. They built altars to do what? To worship. The question is to worship what or whom? They have not known the Lord. There was a determination Israel had that the Lord knew implicitly about. I know Ephraim. What they do will not allow them to turn unto their God. That's what he knew. What they are doing in their religious idolatry will not allow them to turn unto their God because this wasn't a matter of ability. It, it doesn't say that they can't do it. It says that they won't do it. The priests and the people were guilty of refusing to repent. And that phrase is, is, is so clear when it says they will not frame. It is the battle of the will. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. They're not going to frame it. They're not going to do it so that they can give it back to God. That, that's the point. They love the pleasures of sin too much to consider confessing their wickedness and turning their lives around. They were enslaved to the pleasures of illicit sex. They were enslaved to their idol worship with its fleshly rituals. And as a result, they didn't know the Lord and could not know Him. They refused to repent of their sins and to acknowledge God as their Savior and their Lord. This was, folks, this is a simple matter of pride. And that pride goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That pride goes all the way back to the serpent's arrogant question to Eve. Did God really say that? We all should memorize Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride says, I know more about things than God does. Pride says, I don't need God in my life. I've got it all together. And so, what did that pride lead Israel to? Notice verse 5 of our text. And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. And therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. People who fall because of pride usually don't like to fall by themselves. They seem to take others with them. 
although they had rejected the Lord and his holy commandments, the people felt religiously secure in their worship. And there's good reason, because when they began to worship at the onset of, of, of the northern kingdom, they weren't being prosperous. They were being considered as a strong nation to some extent. And, and they were uh, prospering as, as a nation. But they took pride in their faithful attendance and the offerings they made to their so-called gods. But they were only deceiving themselves. Their arrogance was an insult to God. For they were placing their dependency and their destiny in a false god. And they were placing it in idol worship. In doing so, they had become a stumbling block to others. And in this case, to the citizens of Judah. And by this time, many within Judah were, were following the wicked behavior of their northern cousins. They were already kind of dabbling in idol worship. And don't forget that in Judah, many of the kings were good kings, but there were also some bad kings in the southern kingdom. So whichever way the kings oftentimes went, the people went. Which didn't say much for the people's faith in the Lord, if that's what happened. And with the coming judgment and punishment, it wasn't uncommon for Israel in their time of desperation to seek the Lord with their flocks and their herds, as it is referred to here in verse 6, where it says, They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. So what was it uncommon for Israel in their time of desperation to seek the Lord with their flocks and herds? But it was getting late. And soon enough, it would be too late. Their, their lack of genuine loyalty would fall short. By the way, one answer comes in the next chapter. In chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 is a familiar verse. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God would rather that we know him than worry about offering things unto him in sacrifices. Hosea chapter 8, verses 11 through 14 says, Because Ephraim hath, hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. They sacrificed flesh for the sacrifice of, sacrifices of mine offerings, and eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and buildeth temples. And Judah hath multiplied fenced cities. But I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. Returning to Egypt really is a, is a picture of returning to slavery. 
And then think about what is said in Isaiah chapter 10, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, and following verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Notice the choice selection of words here that he calls these people. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Hear, Shema, give ear, listen. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I, I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or he goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand, to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, if God has commanded there, that there would be these festivals, is he saying these things about the festivals or is he saying these things about the hearts of the people that are doing them? Because in the reality, what he's focusing upon is really their heart, where their hearts were. You guys are just doing this automatically. You do this on the outside, but on the inside, you could care less. You could care less for me, and you can care less for your brothers. And people today want to be seen of men just as the Pharisees wanted to be seen of men when they'd go out into the streets and, and, and look so pious as they were praying out loud unto God and people would say, oh my, what a pious man, what a, what a holy man that is. And God says, yeah, you're on the outside being looked at by people and being praised and you know what, you're getting your praise from them and guess what, that's all you're gonna get. But if you want praise from me, you're going to get in your closet where no one sees you, where I alone hear you and see you. And I'll praise you. I will exalt you in due season. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. To go up, you've got to go down. To live, you've got to die to yourself. And certainly the people were unfaithful to the Lord, as the text reveals in Hosea chapter 5, verse 7, where it says, They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. By the word, the word, uh, by the way, the word treacherously has to do with unfaithfulness. They have dealt treacherously, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. So they were guilty of evil behavior and of worshiping false gods. Subsequently, they raised their children in the same sinful manner and ways. The parents were, in effect, dooming their children to be separated from God. 
thus dooming them to the coming judgment. And therefore the Lord in his justice pronounced his condemnation of the people along with their monthly celebration of new moon festivals. That's why it says there at the end, now shall a month devour them with their portions. Talking about the monthly celebration of the new moon with its false worship and its drunken revelry. And it would be the land that would suffer greatly. It would be the land. Time and time again, God says, you need to get yourself right with me because you're, you're going to make the land desolate, which is what happened to them after the Babylonians took over Jerusalem and destroyed it, took the people into captivity for 70 years. Then not only that, but after the, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, wouldn't be very much longer that on AD, in AD 70, the Romans would come and destroy the city and the people would be scattered to all the four corners of the earth. And the land for 2,000 years would be desolate. Desolate. I mentioned the word treacherously is the word in the Hebrew bagad, which means unfaithfully. And Jeremiah phrased it in this manner. Jeremiah 3, verse 20, he said, Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. The warning of coming judgment was to be shouted out in all the major cities and in all the tribes. Hosea 5 verses 8 through 15. Blow ye the cornet, which literally is the shofar, the ram's horn. Blow ye the shofar in Gibeah and the trumpet the silver trumpet, the Hatsotsera, in Ramah. Gebeah and Ramah were cities just north of the border in the northern kingdom, but, but very close to the southern kingdom, and primarily the tribe of Benjamin. Cry aloud at Beth Avon after thee, O Benjamin, and remember that Beth Aven is the house of evil. And again, it is in that same vicinity. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. And then notice, if you will, verse 10. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. The children of Judah were being judged for a sin of removing boundaries. Boundaries. Does God care about boundaries? Yes, he does. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. Now you have to understand something about this phrase, after the commandment. 
Because we would think, well, he was walking after the commandment, he gets punished for walking after the commandment, but you need to understand what the word commandment is. In, in, in the Hebrew, it is the word tzav, which means, uh, depending on the context, it could mean law, but it also means vanity or filth. Interesting thing about that. And don't ask me anything about that, because I don't know. But that's how deep this particular word is used. And again, it all depends on the context. So maybe some of the modern translations might, might make it a little clearer to you, but, but one thing it doesn't say is that um, uh, it, may, it may say in, in some translations, walking after man's commandment or implying that it is going after man's commandment, but that's not the case. The word is very clear. The sav is, is, uh, is just more than likely vanity walking after a person's own way. With that in mind, let me go to on to verse 12 because this has another statement of, of interest. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and to the house of Judah as rottenness. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a moment. So when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, they went, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian. That would be the Assyrian king. Uh, and, and sent to King Yarev, and that's not his name. King Yarev is, is like a title, but it literally means king of contention. Went to the king of contention because Assyria was wanting to come down and, and actually uh, uh, take over that particular region, which we would know as all of Israel from northern, northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. Yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound? For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I Even I will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early. So what we find here is that the sentence is being pronounced now in verses 8 through 15. The sentence is being pronounced, and the verdict, the verdict has been made clear. The verdict is guilty. All of Israel is guilty, but so is Judah. Guilty. But not as guilty as Israel. The day of judgment was coming when the cities of Israel would be conquered by the invading Assyrian army and the citizens taken into captivity. The land would be laid waste on that day of rebuke. And even Judah would be included in this discipline, as we saw in verse 10. But the Assyrians devastated Judah, and this is why it's a little different in the fact that all of, of Israel that would be judged in a very uh, strong way. Eventually, of course, Judah would also be judged. But when it per pertains to the Assyrians, this is what we need to understand. The Assyrians devastated Judah, but were not able to capture Jerusalem. The Lord delivered King Hezekiah and his people in a most miraculous way. If you want to read about it, it's Isaiah 36 and 37. So now, according to Hosea's prophecy, Judah's sin was that of seizing territory that wasn't rightfully theirs. They did this by moving the boundary markers in order to increase 
their holdings, which was a direct violation of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 14. Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in, their, in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. So right there it says, you know, don't touch people's borders. Borders are important to God. And as we read the description of Israel's doom, we found this unexpected figure of speech in verse 12. The Lord said, therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth, and to the house of Judah as rottenness. <laughs> what? A moth? Well, moths are hard to see sometimes. You can see them, but they, they don't have wings that flap so hard that you can hear them. So they're kind of unheard and sometimes unseen. But it's when they're unseen that's the worst thing. Because a moth in a garment eats away at the fabric and can destroy the fabric. How many of you used to know what a cedar closet was, a cedar chest or a cedar closet? Uh, the, yeah, a few of you, not, not too many people. I don't know if they still have them or not. But uh, we used to have one in our basement, you know. And they'd have these little stinky things that you put inside so they'd kind of kill, kill the moths, you know, keep, keep them away from fine clothing. Because if you just kind of left things out, you know, moths will get in there and eat them up. Likewise, rottenness, the word for rottenness here uh, for Judah, it's talking really about uh, something that secretly eats away at wood, but, but doing that much more slowly than the way moths work. And so that's why there in verse 12 it says, Ephraim as a moth and to the house of Judah as rottenness, because rottenness is a little slower process. So Israel's doom was coming swiftly. This is the whole point. Israel's doom was coming really quickly. But Judah's was coming more slowly. The Lord was secretly undermining both countries because of their wickedness. They don't see these things happening. He's telling them, he's telling them judgment's coming, but they're not seeing that. And as our text states, Israel and Judah were weak, and they were sick nations. When you read in Isaiah chapter 1, in the very first chapter of Isaiah, verses 4 through 6, it says, Ah, sinful nation, a, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. But then it says in verse 5, why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. A sick head, 
and the whole heart faint. The head, the reasoning, they had become irrational in their thinking. The whole heart faint. Everything that they did against the law of God was causing the whole body to weaken. In Jeremiah 30, verses 12 and 13, it says, For thus saith the Lord, thy bruise is incurable, and thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. In and of themselves, they had no hope. The only hope they had was to cry out to God in repentance and turn back to God for strength and for life. But instead of turning to the Lord for healing, both of them, Israel and Judah, turned to the king of Assyria for help. Obviously at different times because there were different kings in Assyria, but for example, Ahaz, the king of Judah, sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria at that time, for help against the king of Syria. So. In Judah, they were having problems with Syria, so he goes to Assyria, Assyria for help. And then, interestingly enough, in the northern kingdom at a certain time, Hosea, who is the king of Israel, became a servant, not the Hosea who wrote the prophecy, of course, but there was a king named Hosea who became a servant. Now, this is really interesting. He became a servant to Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And, and then he started giving him stuff. He started giving him presents, just, you know. <laughs> By the way, the, uh, the, the Ahaz passages in 2 Kings 16, the uh, Hosea passages in 2 Kings 17, respectively, if you're interested in reading those. But the lesson is this. The lesson is don't look to your enemies for help when you're in trouble. Don't look to your enemies for help when you're in trouble. Turn to your heavenly Father who loves you. Turn to the God who made you and created you and gave you everything that you need for life and godliness through his son, Jesus Christ. Turn to him who loves you. That is what God desires of us, that we would come to him. And let me just say this, and I don't mean this in a harsh way, but when it comes to the issues of prayer, we've kind of become a little bit tempered into thinking that we just need to go to somebody to pray for me. You need to go to God yourself. It's okay, you know, to have people pray with you about certain things. I'm not saying don't do that. We have quite an interesting and, 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 and very wonderful, actually, uh, prayer uh, uh, ministry here that, that works through, you know, we get, we get uh, updates all the time, you know, from people that are in need of prayer uh, today. As a matter of fact, we got one today for one of our members I wanted to bring up maybe here in just a few moments, but uh, this came, you know, we could pray for him tonight because he's our brother in Christ going through a kind of an emergency surgery type thing. So I, I'm, not, I'm not against that, but the point of the matter is sometimes We'd rather go to prayer lines than go to the Lord himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? All I'm saying is we need to pray first. 
And there are just times when, you know, I don't, I don't need to be telling everybody what I need to pray for because God knows what's in my heart. I need to pray. I need to get on my knees. I need to ask God for these things. The encouraging thing is God is there to listen. And time and time again, you know, we, we've got to set ourselves apart from the things of this world, from the things that, you know, take our time and, 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 and our uh, uh, schedules. And, and, and we need to put them aside and say, you know, Lord, I need to be here before you. There are burdens in my heart. There are things that I need to bring you. Nobody else needs to know these things. Whenever they do need to know, I can take it to somebody, but, but the, you know, the important thing is I need to come to you first. We need to turn to the Lord. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to look to him for strength. We need to look to him for the strength of our lives. It, it, it certainly isn't ourselves or our fellow man that's gonna strengthen us. We can only go so far. I've always loved Psalm 61 in verses one through four that says, hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Well, that's a wonderful prayer because if I'm praying, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, I'm just saying, Lord, lead me to Jesus because he's the only rock. He's the only rock that matters. And he's the rock that is solid. And he's the rock that we can stand on, that we can be grounded in, that we can be established in. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a, and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. In other words, I will trust in the cover that you put over me with your wings. I will trust in that. Let's finish up here. Verse 15 of our text will lead us right into chapter 6 next time. It is speaking of a future time of restoration, which has occurred and yet will also occur. So, we're talking about things that will still happen prophetically, but based on something that has already happened, the complete fulfillment of what has taken place here in this text. Because Hosea 15, verse, I'm sorry, Hosea 5:15 says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. You might ask, when does he go? And when did he return to his place? I think of John 1 verse 11 here, where John writes about Jesus, the Logos, the Word, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He then was crucified on the cross of Calvary. 
resurrected on the third day and returned to glory, to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And how long will he stay there? Till Israel acknowledges their sin of rejecting him. When is that going to happen? That is going to happen when Jesus comes with ten thousands of his saints to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, to sit on the throne of David for a thousand years. And Israel, who has to be in the land for that, and that's already happening. The rest of Bible prophecy cannot happen without Israel being where God wants them to be, which is in the land. The fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 9 is so necessary in this respect. It speaks of the Messiah. And so the prerequisite to the Lord's return is Israel calling on him to return. And do you know what many Jews are saying today? Many of the Orthodox Jews in Israel, there are signs all over. We've seen them. The Messiah is coming. They just don't know it's Jesus. But the text of Zechariah tells us, and I quoted this last time, the text of Zechariah tells us they will look upon him whom they pierced and then they'll know it's Yeshua, it's Jesus. We will come with Jesus because he have, he's already come. Before God begins to deal with Israel again, during those seven years that Daniel speaks of, He'll take us home. Then we come with him and reign with him for a thousand years in Jerusalem. We're going to see all of this played out for us in chapter 6. So that's just a uh, precursor for what we've got ahead, ahead of us. Praise the Lord. Jesus is coming. Amen.